Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Hey, in this episode, you're going to hear some technical issues. While we were recording it, we had multiple technical issues. I would even go as far to say our technical issues had technical issues. There are some spots where you will hear maybe some dropped words or some clicking or where it sounds like it was edited really poorly, and I promise you it was not. What was being said was important enough that I didn't want to edit the whole chunk out and you can understand it well enough. However, you know, just know that you're going to hear that. We did the best we could with it, we recorded parts, all of that. We're hoping to not have these issues again, of course, but you know, computers, microphones, it's just all so complicated. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie. And after two weeks with guests, Allie and I are on our own again. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. It's school holidays here, so a bit crazy, but I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. You know, again, my kids are not on holiday from school. They're in school and it's all on all the time. I have a son who's in theater and it's every night all the time. So so we're pretty hectic when we're in school, but that's how it goes with older kids, I think. Anyway, tonight we are going to talk about what, until very recently, was a very forgotten part of U.S. history, particularly LGBT history. We're going to talk about the 1973 upstairs lounge arson attack that killed 32 people. This show suggestion actually came back when this podcast was really just getting started and I was just asking friends and family for mystery show ideas. So a huge thank you to my cousin Jim who sent me the information on this event. Little did I know that about a month or so after putting this on our show schedule, I would actually hear about it in the news with the Orlando nightclub shooting. This attack and that one were compared. So to just give some background on the Orlando nightclub shooting for anyone who doesn't know, the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, was the scene of the deadliest mass attack in the United States against the LGBT community when a single gunman shot and killed 49 people. Prior to this June 2016 attack, the arson at the Upstairs Lounge in New Orleans was the deadliest mass attack against the LGBT community in the U.S. Because of this, articles started popping up referring to the Upstairs Lounge in the articles about Orlando. And so it's pretty likely some of our listeners have recently heard about this, but some of you guys might be hearing about this for the first time. I want to be clear from the start, one big difference between this attack and Orlando is that there's reason to believe that this attack was not a targeted act of homophobia. There is reason to believe that the fire was actually started by a patron of the establishment. Yes. However, what I think we're really going to show tonight 
is the differences between the response between the upstairs lounge attack and the Orlando Pulse nightclub attack. I think that's what makes this story worth talking about today. So just a little bit of history of the Upstairs Lounge. It was a bar owned by Phil Esteve, and it was located in the famed French Quarter in New Orleans. For those of you who are familiar with the quarter, it was about half a mile down Iberville Street from where the Audubon Aquarium is located right now. It was one of many gay bars in New Orleans, though that isn't the same as saying that New Orleans in the early 1970s was overall accepting of the gay community. There were many issues, and we'll see that clearly when we talk about the aftermath of this fire. I'm going to post a floor plan of the Upstairs Lounge in a, on our page and in our Facebook group, but to give you some context of where that is in this building is it's actually on the second floor of a three-story building. Above it, has been described as a flop house with rooms to rent, and the bottom floor was a different bar. Yeah. The neighborhood wasn't the greatest, and it actually took some time before Phil could really build up a regular crowd who would come out there and patronize his bar. However, it did become fairly popular, and the regulars became like family. In one story, Phil, the owner, was actually one of the regular patrons right home from the hospital after surgery. The couples who went to the bar together regularly had each other home for dinner and supported each other's Mardi Gras organizations known as crews, which is a pretty big deal there. So the primary purpose of the building was as a gay bar and not just your normal let's go for drinks bar, but there was a stage and a piano. And they also hosted drag shows, melodramas and musical performances in the three room space they had. While the bar was still struggling to build its patronage, the owner and the bartender, they came up with the idea, which is quite a clever idea actually, of starting a beer bash. Every Sunday evening, patrons would pay a simple cover charge and on all the tables were pitchers of beer. And throughout the beer bash, these pitchers would be constantly refilled. So I mean, while the idea would have cost the bar money at first, word would spread and eventually, these people who went to the beer bash would then return during the week to make the beer bash idea a success. Now, many of these patrons were also members of the Metropolitan Community Church. And originally, the building was used to hold the MCC services on a Sunday. However, this had recently been moved to the home of the church's pastor just before the fire. But the bar still was sort of an after-church social activity. So let's pause on that for a moment and talk about the MCC and its connection to the Upstairs Lounge. The Metropolitan Community Church is actually still in existence, and it's a Protestant denomination founded in 1968 in Los Angeles in Troy Perry's living room. The theology is based on the same Nicene and Apostles' Creed that most Christian churches use— but aside from that, they are largely focused on social justice and outreach into minority groups and the LGBT community. They've been politically active, seeking equal rights and protections for everybody. The founder of the MCC is the first person to bring a court case in the United States seeking recognition for same-sex marriage in 1970. Now, 
it's obvious to anyone who knows U.S. history that he lost because it wasn't until last year in 2015 that the Supreme Court struck down all restrictions on same-sex marriage all across the United States. You can say he got the ball rolling, even if it was a very slow rolling ball. And the MCC is international at this point anyway. There are branches in Australia as well as most other countries. And the New Orleans MCC, like a lot of them in the beginning, had trouble finding somewhere to meet. Building church buildings is not cheap. They were meeting at the upstairs lounge when Father Bill Richardson, a minister at St. George Episcopal Church, who self-identified as bisexual and also was concerned about the oppression of the gay community, he allowed MCC Pastor Bill Larson to use the chapel there to help move the church out of a bar. Now, this wasn't a very popular move on Father Richardson's part, so they didn't really meet there for long. But I want you to remember his name because he made some other not popular decisions after the after the arson. I'm a little unclear on the timeline because they may have went back to the upstairs lounge after the meeting in St. George's stopped, but before they moved to the other house or they may have not gone back. But regardless, the church eventually used a house to hold their church meetings, and they had just moved in there a few weeks before the attack. And like Ali said, they still met at the upstairs lounge for other purposes, for socializing and also planning meetings. The MCC has had 17 suspicious fires in various congregations, and two happened in the months before the upstairs lounge attack. The first was on the original congregation. They had moved to a new building in early 1971, and that building was destroyed by arson in 1973. And in Nashville, the altar in the congregation was destroyed along with some sacred items, and that fire was deemed suspicious. So these arsons at the MCC churches, it was not even a new thing in 1973. So Ali, do you want to walk us through the events leading up to the attack? Okay, so let's walk through the day of the arson. First thing that's worth of note is that the crime happened on Pride weekend, and that Sunday was the final day of festivities. This was only four years after the Stonewall riots. And for those who don't know, the Stonewall Riots was a series of violent protester demonstrations carried out by the members of the LGBT community. And these demonstrations were in response against a police raid on the Stonewall Inn on June 28, 1969 in Manhattan. Like the Upstairs Lounge, very few establishments welcomed openly gay people during this time And with police raids on gay bars increasing, the LGBT community was feeling targeted. And so, with that increasing tension, it resulted in the Stonewall riots. So that was four years earlier, and despite what happened, or what it achieved, many of these men were still closeted outside their inner circles. And while Pride Weekend was recognised, and Stonewall was commemorated, it wasn't like Pride Weekend is today. There were no loud and proud demonstrations. That's even though there were almost two dozen gay bars dotted along the French Quarter. 
It seems the LGBT community in the city, it remains largely underground for reasons that will become apparent later on. So this was a Sunday and the MCC met for their weekly church service. This was followed by the beer bash at the upstairs lounge. The owner, who wasn't present that night, but the usual bartender, Buddy Resmussen, was there, who I think acted like a manager from what I could gather. He seemed to have a lot of responsibility within the operations of the bar. A lot of the members of the MCC church were also there to celebrate Pride Weekend at the bar. The church's pastor was there, Pastor Bill Larson, and the assistant pastor, George Mitchell, who was also known as Mitch. The beer bash attracted about 125 people. However, after the free beer ran out and the dinner ended at about 7 o'clock, only about 60 or so stayed. And these were mostly members of the MCC corrugation. And they were getting ready to plan an upcoming charity fundraiser for the local children's hospital. During the beer bash, two men, David Dubose and Roger Nunez, they were kicked out and they would later become the prime suspects. Yeah, I think what you said about Buddy's role in the bar, I mean, he really, the beer bash was his idea. He was really involved in the running of the bar. Yeah, I think when the owner, Phil, wasn't there, Buddy took over as like running the day-to-day operations. I had re- I read a book in preparation for this called, and the title is inflammatory on purpose. It's called "Let the Faggots Burn" by Johnny Townsend. Yes, and it recorded firsthand accounts of what happened at the bar and how it worked. And Phil tried to get other bartenders in there, and he kind of had a string of them. No one was really as instrumental as Buddy and as reliable and just really had it all together he was really a great asset to definitely the business this is a second story establishment and so the patrons would walk up a wooden staircase to the bar however there was a buzzer down at the bottom of the staircase now this was used primarily by like delivery men or taxi drivers coming to get somebody so when bartender buddy heard the buzzer A little after 7.50 in the evening on that Sunday, he was a little confused. No one had called for a cab. I mean, this is before cell phones. He would have known if someone used his phone. And deliveries on Sunday nights just don't happen. He was busy tending bar, so he sent Luther Boggs to open the door and see who was there. But as soon as Luther opened the door, the entire staircase went up in flames from that sudden rush of oxygen. Yes. And what's known as a backdraft situation happened. And that happens, for those who didn't watch the movie, (laughs) that happens when a fire that's pretty much consumed all the available oxygen, it suddenly gets that rush of more oxygen and it explodes. Yes. Survivors described it as like a fireball entered the room when Luther opened that door. And I know we'll get into this a bit later, but it's amazing that Luther survived this backdraft. It's incredible that he wasn't immediately burnt. And the fire just took over the room. The staircase was actually the only way many knew that they could even get out. There were no other marked exits. And so... Some people actually took their chances and tried running down that burning staircase through the flames to get out. 
And so that can kind of tell you how quickly all of this happened. Like I said, I'm going to go ahead and post the the floor plan and I might make sure I even post it before the yeah, I'll I'll post it before you even hear this episode so you have it in your mind. The upstairs lounge was three rooms that led to the other. There was not like a hallway. It wasn't all one big room, but there wasn't a hallway. It was just room one, room two, room three. The staircase led you into the first room and that's where the bar was. And now there's a pretty wide opening to the second room, which was known as the lounge area. However, to get to the third room where the stage was, where they would do those melodramas and performances like we talked about, there was just like a standard door-sized frame. And when they started the beer bashes, they actually started them back in that room and they weren't successful because that room feels really cut off from the rest of the bar. It's when they moved it into the main part of the bar that they started seeing a lot of people coming to it. So this room feels very disconnected from the rest. Buddy, the bartender, he started yelling for people to follow him. But with the chaos, not everybody even heard him. And, I mean, some of them were in shock. This was just, think about how quickly this is happening. And you have 60 people in a room that is now on fire with the only exit blocked. You can imagine with that backdraft, the whole room would have been on fire within seconds. So I can imagine the screaming, the panic. Right. The smoke the fire, the heat. Buddy actually grabbed patrons who were still sitting there, not even moving, and pulled them along with him because he knew about another exit. He was able to lead people through the first two rooms to that back third room. There was an exit behind the stage that led to the lower roof, and then it allowed them to go over to the adjoining building. Somewhere between 20 and 25 people did follow him, and it's possible that others, not knowing there was an exit back there, decided not to follow him because the room was full of windows. And so surely that would be their best bet. And, you know, as the flames grew in this short amount of time, the second room became cut off pretty quickly anyway, which stopped people from making it to that exit. So those who got to the windows found them covered by bars. Now, they've often been characterized as security bars, but if you look, they're really pretty widely spaced for security bars. And in fact, some people actually slipped through them and jumped to the street below to escape. They're about 14 inches apart. So yeah, a pretty wide gap. A pretty wide gap. And some of the people who jumped through them were actually on fire when they jumped out of the windows. The bars on these windows were actually designed to more keep people in than out. These windows were pretty much like floor to ceiling. And this is a second story bar with old windows and drunk people dancing. So they were really just to keep people from falling out of the windows. So it's actually a safety measure, which obviously this made it unsafe in the incident of this fire. In the end, the fire burned for just 16 minutes. 28 people immediately died in the fire, and four later died from their injuries. 15 additional were injured, though not fatally. However, when I say not fatally, that doesn't mean mildly either. Some of them were severely, severely burned. And 20 survived with more psychological scars than physical ones. 
all of the victims who died in the fire died in that first room up against the windows, and many were found embracing. After this fire, we start getting the reactions of the media and the government. The mainstream media was largely uninterested in showing compassion for the upstairs lounge victims. And while we talk about how these victims were treated, or mistreated as it were, we want everyone to keep in the back of their minds the reaction to the Orlando nightclub shooting. For the most part, it was an outpouring of love and support. Now picture the opposite of that, and that's what happened in the aftermath of the upstairs lounge fire. Initial news coverage, it failed to mention that the fire had anything to do with the gay community. This is despite the fact it was a gay church in a gay bar that had been torched. And then the reports turned from ignoring that fact to mocking it. A story that is repeated in a lot of news articles is a radio commentator who suggested that the dead should be buried in fruit jars, referencing the slur calling gay men fruits. When I was writing the script and I kept reading that over and over again, I almost didn't want to put it in the script. But to give people the idea of what was really happening, I mean, that is what was being said. It was absolutely terrible, distasteful jokes like that. And then the fire stopped becoming headline news after the second day. And you'd really expect that if this happened anywhere in New Orleans other than a gay bar, it would have been in the media for weeks. And the government response, it really wasn't any better. The police department's chief detective, he just reinforced the media's homophobic statements when he told reporters that it was just thieves and queers that hung out at the bar. The mayor and the governor, they failed to make statements of sympathy which is what you would normally see in mass tragedies like this. And the initial investigation into the arson, it lasted only two months. I feel like the media and the government were a reflection of the general sentiment of the people in the area at that time. To kind of put it simply, a large number of people were just not concerned about a bunch of people dying because they were gay. A lot of the media is driven by the public. The public don't want to don't want to hear it or see it. They're not going to report it. Right. And especially in local government when they're getting their votes from the people. Exactly. They're not going to make a controversial statement of sympathy to gay people if they don't think that will further their political career. Two of the people in the attack were straight women. One was the mother of one of the one of one of the men there, and she died much like the mother in the Orlando attacks, again treated completely differently, and one woman was injured. She said that she got a really cold shoulder from people who just started assuming she was a lesbian, because why else would she be there? The survivors of the fire and those in the gay community who had lost their friends in the fire, they had to sit at work, at family gatherings, at pretty much any other social event, and probably even at church, and hear people talk about how those queers got what they deserved. Yeah. Showing any sympathy risked being outed as gay. And being fired for being gay was normal and it was legal. 
and being disowned for being gay was also a valid concern. So they had to sit there, torn between defending their friends and risking everything or staying quiet and taking care of themselves. I can't even imagine being in that position. So the next thing to do after the media ignored this and all these reactions were happening in the general community was that there were a lot of funerals that needed to happen. So there were 32 people who needed to be buried and many churches refused to hold funeral services. I hope you guys all kept put a pin in the name Bill Richardson. He was the minister at St. George's who allowed the MCC to hold services there. He held a prayer service of about 80 people gathered on Monday night at St. George's. It was not publicized. It was more a word of mouth, you should come kind of thing. However, when it was found out that he did that, he was rebuked by his bishop who said he had gotten over a hundred angry calls about holding this prayer service. And as Reverend Richardson kept receiving even more hate mail, he actually considered resigning from his position entirely, and he wrote that he was dismayed at the anti-Christian attitude being displayed, and if he couldn't be both a Christian and a rector, he would give in his resignation. And that's a big stand from him in this, with, with the attitude of the, the public and the media and the government. For him to say that, that was taking a big risk that he would have to stand down. But good on him for standing his ground. Other churches were approached and almost all refused to hold any services or even issue statements of regret over the tragedy. Like with government officials, that's pretty standard to do that. Proof was provided that some of the victims were a member of a specific religion, and that church still turned them away. Reverend Richardson was leaving the country on a planned trip shortly after the prayer service that led to this rebuking and hate mail. So two other ministers stood up and offered their sanctuaries. One was a Unitarian church, and I wasn't able to find the minister's name. No. So unfortunately, I cannot give him or her credit. The other was Reverend Kennedy at St. Mark's Methodist Church. And there were about 250 people that attended the service at St. Mark's. However, the media parked themselves at the front door, ready to snap pictures of anyone who exited. There was a back exit out of St. Mark's, and that was offered to the people at the service that they could go ahead and take that, and some of them did. Though some decided that they were ready to make a statement by walking out the front entrance. And for some of them, that was the closest they had ever come to publicly declaring their sexual orientation, walking out a front door. Obviously, we can see a huge difference in the reactions of the Upstairs Lounge and the Orlando nightclub shooting. The city of Orlando, well, I was reading an article, they were seeking to purchase the location of the nightclub to build a permanent memorial. Memorial services weren't just attended, but they were broadcast on TV. The media lined up not to out people, but to support them. The 2016 Tony Awards, which I watched, I don't know that you care so much about Tony Awards, they were actually held hours later 
from the Orlando attack, and Lin-Manuel Miranda gave what is already a famous love is love is love speech when he accepted his Tony for Hamilton. Orlando, for the most part, got the support and reaction the upstairs lounge should have gotten. And it will be remembered the way Stonewall's remembered. But the upstairs lounge has been largely forgotten. We are going to talk about some of the victims, but there's no way we can go into all of their stories. So I highly recommend if you are interested, get that book. It's called Let the Faggots Burn by Johnny Townsend. It is primarily about the people. A lot of He did a lot of interviews. He did kind of put it together quickly because he was trying to get these stories down before people started passing away and taking these memories with them. Allie, do you want to tell us about Luther? Luther Boggs, the man who opened the door. He was a 47-year-old divorced man with a teen son. And as I mentioned earlier... Unbelievably, he didn't die in that initial backdraft. After a window pane was busted through, he grabs a friend of his. She was a straight woman who occasionally went to the bar to hang out with her friends, and he pushes her out the window. After she makes it to the fire escape, and she does survive with severe burns, she turns around and looks back to find Luther on fire. A man named Gerald Tyler, who was the patron of the bar next door, Gerald was running from his bar into the street with pitchers of water and he was pouring them on those who were jumping out the windows on fire. He gets to Luther and he manages to put the flames out, but unfortunately Luther's injuries were just too severe to recover from. Reverend Bill Larson was the minister of the New Orleans MCC, And he was able to dislodge a window air conditioning unit, and he began to crawl through the window. However, the upper pane collapsed on top of him and pinned him in place. Remember, these are nearly floor-to-ceiling windows, so that was a considerable weight, and he was probably already dealing with smoke inhalation and very possibly some severe burns. He died in that window in full view of the street, and his body remained there for hours. It has been reported that his mother, who it is believed may not have known he was gay, refused to collect his ashes. There is a horrible photo that um, there's a picture of Bill still in the window that you can see. I don't know if we'll miss um, that on our Facebook page, but you can find it quite easily. It's, it's just a horrible photo. If you look for any photos of the upstairs lounge fire, it will come up close-ups multiple times, but also any picture of the front of that building, he is there. So if you look in our promo video, the only one that almost shows it is cropped so it doesn't show it because I just, I can't. It's disrespectful, I think. Yes, I think so as well. And my cousin Jim, who is the one who recommended this episode, He told me that he remembers watching the news and seeing that on the TV, and he was a kid at that time, and it scared him. We kind of had a little bit of a discussion about, well, did they leave him there because they were investigating the crime scene? Could they not remove him? And Jim's feeling is that they left him there on purpose, like, as a, a sign of disrespect. I did read in one of the articles that came out of the time of the fire that, a local bar set up a bar across the street 
and they were selling alcohol for people who were standing there watching it all unfold, like it was a show. The amount of looky-loos just there, and this man was in that window dying. People were on the sidewalk severely burned. The amount of people that were standing around observing and not doing anything else, it's, it's sad. Dwayne George Mitchell, who I said earlier was also known as Mitch, he was a divorced beauty supply salesman, and he was now the assistant pastor of the MCC. On the day of the fire, his two young children, Dwayne, who was 11, and Steve, who was 8, they were visiting Mitch for the weekend from their mother's house. And though that divorce was amicable, it was always hard for the boys to see their dad during the school year. So on the day of the fire, Mitch drops Dwayne and Steve off at the movies like he would often do when they visited. The boys were keen to see the new film, The World's Greatest Athlete. Mitch tells the boys that he will be back when the movie finished and he will be hanging out with his husband, Horace Broussard, at the beer bash and then they were going to attend the charity meeting afterwards. And while Horace and Mitch weren't married in 1973, obviously, the couple had a holy union ceremony two years previously and they considered themselves married. Mitch had followed Buddy at the back exit, but in the panic of the fire, he became separated from Horace in the process. When he realised Horace was still inside, he went back in there looking for him. Their bodies were later found together embracing. Dwayne says that he and Steve watched the movie seven times, waiting for their dad to return. Eventually, Mitch's landlady picks them up, and then the following day, a neighbour takes them to the airport to go home to their mother. During this time, no one tells Dwayne and Steve what happened to their father. Ferris LeBlanc grew up in California, and that's where his family still lives. In the late 1960s, he had a falling out with his family, but it was not over his homosexuality. It was actually over money. His family was fine with him being gay, and they knew his partners. It was actually his partner who called them in the 1970s and said that Ferris had taken off and he wasn't sure where he went. With the surname of LeBlanc, authorities in New Orleans assumed he was a local, yet never made contact with any family member. French surnames are the norm in Louisiana. When no one came forward to claim him... He was buried in Potter's Field with three other unidentified and unclaimed bodies. So let's fast forward to 2015, when Ferris's sister asked her son to Google Ferris's name and see if anything came up. And there it was on a list of victims of the upstairs lounge fire. And they had no idea. Can you imagine what they were thinking at the time? Like thinking that he had just run off to live a life somewhere else and then suddenly realize that this had happened to him. And it had happened so long ago. Exactly. I mean, within a few years of the last time they saw him, he had died in this fire. And all this time, the authorities' official statement was that he was just another person with no family to claim his body. And they didn't even know he was there. They have since traveled to New Orleans and visited his grave, 
However, they don't have the means to exhume him, transport him, and rebury him. But this, I feel like this kind of gives you an idea of how much or how little authorities cared about these people. They, how hard did they even look for Ferris's family? In 40 years, nobody was able to say, oh, we haven't found relatives. Maybe he's not from here. Nobody even really looked. And buried with Ferris are three identified white men. Because of the climate in New Orleans and the raids on gay bars by police, many carried fake IDs when they went into bars. If they were arrested in a gay bar under their real name, they would be facing those consequences we talked about. Family, employment, that sort of thing. Even if these identification pieces of identification survived the fire, that doesn't mean it actually matched the men's true identities. And without anyone coming forward to say, my son is missing, or someone else saying, oh, here's a piece of jewelry that other patrons might be able to identify who it belongs to, the true identities of these three men remain unknown. The Metropolitan Community Church, like the main church, asked for the remains of these men so that they could bury them, and the city refused, and instead buried them together in a pauper's grave. Again, shows how much, how little these victims were cared about. So we've talked about the, this story as the story. So now let's go ahead and talk about it as a crime. Are you ready to get into the, to the suspects? Yes. There are two suspects identified within this two-month investigation. I... I'm a little on the fence about how quickly they're willing to pin it on patrons versus looking outside to see if it was a homophobic attack, figuring those were pretty normal at the time. However, this is what we have to work with. You know, I'm very I'm very surprised they didn't look at it more of a homophobic attack, especially with the two other MCC churches being attacked not that long beforehand. So for them to do look more inside... Yeah, I'm very surprised. It makes me wonder if they'd want to pin it on someone inside the church so that they could write it off. Exactly. I will say one of these guys does seem like a pretty viable suspect, but I don't know that they looked much beyond him. A corner store employee reported having sold lighter fluid to a distraught man she described as being, quote, gay. I mean, I don't know, did he have a badge on, rainbow flag? I have no <laughs> idea what she means by he was gay. Uh, unless he was kissing another man, I don't know that she could say that for sure, but whatever. Statements from survivors, there were two men who had been kicked out of the bar during the beer bash, and they were identified as David Dubose and Roger Nunez. One of the men had been caught spying on other men in the bathroom, and someone had punched him. He reportedly said, I'm going to burn you all out. So David Dubose, one of the men that was kicked out, he was a 19-year-old known for troublemaking. He confessed to setting the fire, and then he recanted. After being provided with an alibi and passing a polygraph, he was taken off the immediate suspect list. The other man kicked out of the bar was Roger Nunez. When police attempted to interview him, he had a seizure. He was admitted into the hospital where it was discovered that he also had a broken jaw. So if I'm going to put that together with the witness statement that one of these men was punched, I'm going to 
guessed that it was Nunez who had been punched, and he was the one who made the threatening comment. It makes sense. The police were not notified when he left the hospital, and they were supposedly unable to find him for a while. And now, just in the context of this whole thing, I'm just going to express a little doubt that they even looked that hard for him. He never even left New Orleans. No. When they found him, he was in the French Quarter. Which he'd been seen quite frequently in after he was released from hospital. Right. Had he burned people in a church full of straight people, I am very sure they would have found him pretty quickly. A year after the fire, Nunez committed suicide. After his death, a friend told police that Nunez had confessed to the crime while drunk, though he would deny it while he was sober. In the supposed confessions, he said that he didn't realize the fire would spread so quickly and trap so many people. When they cleared DuBose and Nunez died, the case pretty much just stopped being investigated at all. The police officially closed the criminal case in 1980. All right, so this case was a really hard one for us to research. I know it's kind of on the shorter side of what we usually do. Well, there's not much information about it because no one cared enough at the time. We're really glad that you tuned in and we want to just say thank you for all of your emails, your online participation and the reviews you're leaving us in iTunes. We have a Facebook group now, which is where we will be posting a lot. So Facebook is weird about what they show and don't show on a page. And it's kind of based on what they think you want to see. But with the groups, you can control how much you want to see in your feed and how many notifications you want, that sort of thing. And you can also say things in the comments that people in your normal friends won't see. I've actually already heard back from someone who said they see a whole lot more now that we've started a group. Oh, cool. So definitely join the group if you want to have more conversations. It also lets you post where everyone can see it, whereas on a page, it kind of hides it under visitor posts. We also have a Twitter, which is where you can reach me directly, and it's at InsightfulPod. And Allie is on Instagram at InsightPod. Our email is InsightfulPod at gmail.com. Facebook is InsightPod. We have a Patreon, and that has been so fantastic. So thank you to all of our contributors. We know people support the show in all different ways. This specific way will let us meet our goal of having new microphones, which will definitely improve our audio quality. And we're really looking forward to that. So a huge thank you to everyone. And if you do want to give on Patreon, just go to patreon.com and search for Insight and you'll find us there. And as always, you can show your support by leaving reviews. The biggest thing that really helps is subscribing. So if you listen to our podcasts with any frequency, Just hit that subscribe button and that'll really help us. Yes, next week we have uh, another special guest, which I'm very excited about. All right, thanks, guys, and we will see you next week. Bye, thanks. Thanks.